0: Father, your word says in Psalm 111, verse 2, that the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. And so we ask now that you would give us real pleasure, real delight in studying your great works, and that in so doing we might receive the gift of understanding, that gift that you only give to those who keep your commandments. Purify us now that we might ascend the mountain of God, for we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. All right, well before we get into uh, lesson three, because you know two weeks elapse between all of these meetings, I want to just briefly review some of what we covered a couple weeks ago. Uh, so in case you forgot, we're on a kind of years long or more journey to understand uh, the significance of um, the tabernacle, the temple, and the, the furniture inside of them. And we're starting with what those structures symbolize in their biggest, broadest, sense. So essentially we're asking, what does it mean that God has made a home or he has an earthly address at the tabernacle or the temple? And we're trying to piece that together with everything else that scripture says about God, like uh, he doesn't have a body, like he's not spatially located anywhere, um, that he is uh, infinite and eternal. And yet uh, is said to dwell with people under certain symbols and signs. So that's some of the tension that we've been trying to walk through and mediate. and so we're we're really starting with some deep, difficult th- theology, like this. I am giving you the very like, theology for dummies, version of something that you could spend many hours reading many books to try to understand. And we're, so we're, we're just kind of dipping our toes in the deep end without you know jumping in and drowning. Um, but does anyone remember, we're talking about the ways in which God is present, does anyone remember the three ways in which God can be said to be present in, in scripture? Ava. Good. So in case you didn't hear that, uh, the first one was omnipresence, or what we're calling common presence. So God is commonly present. And then the second one was he is what? Special presence. presence. And what is special presence? I have not actually really explained to you what special presence is, but does anyone want to take a guess based on what we've talked about? and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, yeah. I guess we did talk a little bit about that. So this is location, it's given a, it's given a proximity. Uh, yeah, we in, like in a person. Is that what you mean? <laughs> because it's because it's in a person. Okay, yeah, uh, and yeah, well, that, that's a difficult question, right? Um, and then the third one is what we call a hypostatic presence, or it's just that the divine nature has taken on a human a nature to itself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, God is wholly present in Christ in a way that he's not present everywhere and not present in you and me, right? Um, So Jesus is a unique um, version or mode of God's uh, presence. We call that hypostatic presence. Okay, Uh, we then concluded last time with this question, under which of those three headings then do we place God's presence in the tabernacle or temple? So does anyone remember how we answered that question, which we said it's kind of a trick question. It's a nuanced answer. So God's everywhere. He's specially in believers. He's specially in Christ. What is that presence that God is in the tabernacle? Which category does that go under? Uh, Was that Charles? Yeah, and Charles, could you explain what that means, that God... uh, is present in all three ways in the tabernacle. Does that mean Jesus is in the tabernacle, sitting there in the holy place in Exodus? No, but um, he's everywhere, so he's naturally in the tabernacle. Okay. He's in the tabernacle as like a cloud, and so that's like the spirit in the tabernacle. Okay. And then um, it says that he sits on the throne. okay that's a good, that's a pretty good shot given what you've been taught thus far I'll give you a, a B plus <laughs> so the, the way that we would want to talk about this is that the temple and tabernacle are signs this is the way the scripture talks about it signs or shadows uh, likenesses of God's special presence in believers and his presence in Christ so the tabernacle is shouting incarnation, incarnation, incarnation for thousands of years. And the way that we know this is because the New Testament calls both Christ and us temples of the Holy Spirit. So suddenly you have this illumination of, oh, that that's what the tabernacle and the temple were pointing towards, that God would come and dwell in Christ, and he would also come and dwell in you. So... When we're studying these symbols, uh, we're also studying a little bit uh, ourselves. We're also studying Christ, right? That's, that's what the Bible is about. So this is just one of the many angles by which uh, you can kind of get there. Now, uh, tonight what we're going to do is work at uh, understanding God's common presence. So we're not talking about special presence. I mean, we'll, we'll get there, but we're just going to focus and we, uh, we'll see how far we get. Um, I probably have way too much in my notes for us to cover in 25 minutes um but before we get into that i'll just pause are there any like burning questions that you guys wanted to ask related to any of this material before we get going i'll just questions all right good no questions all right um Doing theology is really hard. (laughs) Uh, Doing theology is actually the hardest thing your mind can do. Knowing God is what you were created for, and God is the highest thing the human mind could ever contemplate. Uh, And some doctrines are a lot easier to grasp, like Jesus died and he rose from the dead. You know, my, you know, one and a half year old can almost understand that. <laughs> um, do we understand what that means for us, and you know what happens on the cross? Like you can, you'll spend your lifetime exploring that. But I mean, you talk about like that God is Trinity. Uh, that's a really difficult doctrine to get right. And so um, I want to just say a word about how you do theology because once you kind of um, I'm not a snowboard or anything like that, but I hear that you're supposed to start on uh, what is it called? The bunny slopes or something? Maybe one of these periots can help me out. Uh, so you, you do the easy jumps first before you go on what? The half pipe. Uh, uh, so what we're doing right now is like doing the the, the easy little uh, bunny hills before we go down the mountain and crash into a tree, okay? Uh, we we still will probably crash into many trees in our life, but we should start with the easy stuff. So. When you're trying to understand a doctrine, you want to break it down into digestible chunks. And so there's this method that we're going to walk through that in scholastic theology is very useful, where you just ask, you start with a question. It's usually like a weather question. So whether this, that God is present in every reality. All right, so that would, that would be our, propos- our question, and you'll, you'll notice if it's a weather question, the an, there's only two answers. It's either yes or no, affirmative or negative. So you, you're going to start with this question, this basic proposition. We're wanting to be good theologians, whether God is present in every reality. Remember, that's what common presence is, that God is present in every reality. And we just want to make sure that we're only saying about God things that Scripture says about God, either explicitly or implicitly. So, uh, you know, we're probably not going to say a lot of things about God simply because Scripture doesn't point us there. But when it says something about God, we're actually forced to say it as Christians. So Scripture makes us to say that God is present in every reality. At least that's what I'm going to argue for. And so we're going to just start first with this basic question of answering that yes or no. Now, because we're Christians, uh, we should just be asking in response to that question, well, what does the Bible say? So, uh, uh, but people, you know, if you're if you're not a Christian, you might, if, if you're a Muslim or or say you're a Jew, so you have kind of like half of our scriptures, um, they're going to answer that question based on their authorities. So our, our highest authority is scripture. So let me give you just three uh, supernatural authorities from scripture that, um, That are going to make us say yes to this question. So the biblical standard when you're giving testimony in court is how many witnesses? Two or three. Two or three. And so we're going to follow this same method anytime you're trying to argue, uh, did Jesus rise from the dead? We go one witness, then we go two witnesses, and then sometimes for good measure, we add a third. And then sometimes when it's in dispute, we might just keep going and going and going, okay? So I'm going to give you three witnesses for whether God is present in every every reality. The first one is Isaiah 26, 12, and this one will probably be the most obscure to you when you hear it. So Isaiah 26, 12 says, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. So as I read these texts, I want you to be thinking, does that make me to say that God is present in every reality? What I just said makes you to say that, whether you understand that it makes you to say that probably went over half of our heads, right? So I'll read it again. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. So it's that God has done all your works in you. Like that's what it says okay so there's there's one and I can see there's some skeptical faces out there so let's keep going okay here's a clearer one that you probably do know Philippians 2: 13 says for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure so we're looking for that little preposition in because God is present in every reality is our prop is our question so for it is God which worketh in in you, God's working in you, to will and to do his good pleasure. Okay, so there's witness number two. It's basically just a clearer version of the Isaiah text. And then here's the, uh, I think, a really clear one. This is Acts 17, 28. For in him, in God, for in him we live and move and have our being. Okay, this is the famous scene at the Areopagus where Paul is interacting with Uh, the Athenians, for in him we live and move and have our being. And if you look at the verses kind of before and after, it makes this even more explicit. Okay? Yeah. Do you mind defining the term reality? Yeah. uh, Reality is anything that is real. Anything that has being. And then then there's, uh, so you'd want to say there's two kinds of being. There's a real being and then there's a rational being. So all of being can be really divided into those two, so when you had a dream last night about you know a dinosaur chasing you or whatever happened to you in your crazy dream uh, that was a well it was just a dream <laughs> that did not really happen to you. that dinosaur was not a real being; it was a phantasm in your imagination, and we call that a rational being now if uh, you were awake and a dinosaur chased you. No one else believed you, but it really happened. Well, now it's both a rational being because it's in your mind and memory, but it also is a real being as well. So we're talking about every, every reality, um, period. So this, this is everything. Uh, God is present to everything, full stop, uh, and he's not present to nothing. Okay, so yeah, this, this is such like a basic, it, this literally is the foundation of everything that is. So this is a deeply metaphysical, and therefore for us who are not metaphysicians, is, this is a difficult doctrine to get around. Because you're kind of like the fish asking like, all right, I'm living in water. What is that, what is that? What is it like to have being? Because you don't, none of us know what it was like to not have being, right? Okay, um, does that answer your question? Yeah, Okay. I was just kind of wondering why you wouldn't use the creation as a proof text. Uh, we also could. Oh, okay. Yeah. The reason why is because we're targeting this little aspect of present in, which is a conclusion of creation. But you wouldn't so clearly, even, even if you affirmed God created the world, there are many people who think that, but don't think that God is present in every reality, which is why I've chosen these other texts. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and creation is actually a really difficult doctrine to do. (laughs) Um, Okay, I'm not even going to start talking about that. Okay, so those are our three proof texts, and uh, maybe it's still a little... Foggy to you, but we're going to keep going. I'll give you some examples that will hopefully put flesh on these bones. So let's just say because we believe God's word, our will is inclined to say yes to that proposition, whether God is present in every reality, whether God is omnipresent we're going to say all right i'm going to just trust those three texts and that they they mean what aaron says it means okay you're trusting me you're putting your faith in me uh, but i'm telling you this is what it says so let's say we've answered that question yes once you've answered yes or once your will has been inclined to the inf- the affirmative part of that contradiction whether this or th- or not well now you have to get some understanding and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing so Okay, how? This is the next question. How is God present in every reality? And there's these kind of three questions we could ask. Whether God is present in every reality, we answer yes. How is God present in every reality? That's what we're going to look at now. And then finally, we could ask, well, why is God present in every reality? So that's where we can eventually get to. But let's talk about this how. In what way is God present in every reality? Now, when you're doing theology and you're saying anything about God, you have to always start with creature land, with what you know down here, and you're going to take something in creaturely reality, uh, like that someone is in a place, uh, and then you're going to either say it of God or say it not of God. Okay, so the very first thing that we uh, remove from God is that he, he has a body. Does God have a body? No. So we, we got bodies. We know what it's like to have a body. We see this creaturely thing called bodyliness. And we know from Scripture. And you also could also know not from Scripture. You don't actually even need Scripture to make this affirmation that God does not have a body. Okay? So that's like the most basic, uh, what we call negation or thing that we remove from God. God does not have a body. So we recognize that with us among creatures and here in creature land, uh, we say that something is present in something in different ways. So we're wanting to say God is present in every reality. So let's think about ways in which you and I can be present in different realities. Because we're not going to actually be able to say that God is present in every reality with any kind of real understanding unless we like actually know what we're talking about does this make sense? So we got to actually come down to creature land. We know what scripture says. We don't really understand what it's saying totally. So let's come down to creature land, which is where we inhabit and see if we can talk about the ways in which beings can be in other beings. Okay. Uh, So let me give you a few examples of how we might say this. Uh, Imagine it's a sunny day. And you say something like, the sun is in my eyes. Now, you guys all know that what that means, right? Now, is the sun in your eyes? Is the sun physically, bodily in your eyes? Well, you'd be dead <laughs> if, it, if it was. But So think about what we mean by that, though. When I say the sun is in my eyes, I'm saying because the sun is, causes some effect in me, blindness or something like that. Therefore, I say the sun is in my eyes because it's causing an effect. This is just how we speak. This is actually also how how scripture speaks. Let me give you another example. I might say to my wife, uh, you are in my heart. You're at home, but I take you with me wherever I go. (laughs) Isn't that sweet? Well, what, okay, let's think again. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is I feel the effects of her love, and I want her to feel the effects of my love. And in that way, as feeling this effect, I say that she is in my heart, which if she was, I would be dead, like literally, corporeally, physically. It, It cannot be done. She can't fit in my heart. So those those are two examples and notice in both examples both the sun and the lover are not physically or spatially inside of our eyes or our heart but rather they are inside of us as the what we call the efficient cause so that's what that which is making an effect this is an efficient cause that which makes something to be the sun is making the effect of blindness in me my wife is making the effect of love in me and in her or whatever So those are just a few examples, and there are actually like 12 different ways in which you could say that something is in another thing. So Aristotle has eight uh, versions of how you can say in in his physics, and then uh, the Christian tradition has developed other ways in which you can say this. And this is actually a super important thing to figure out when you're talking about union with Christ, the way in which Christ is in your heart. Uh, so we're starting with the common presence, but when we get to special presence, we're gonna have to do this again and say, well, in what way is God inside of me? In, in what mode can we say that? Because scripture makes us to say that. But but what does that actually mean? Okay, Are you guys starting to understand this like work of how we are trying to grab creaturely things and then either say them of God or not? Okay, let me give you a, an example that I think will help us get more at this God is present in every reality business. So think about this. C.S. Lewis is omnipresent in Narnia. Okay, think about that statement. C.S. Lewis is omnipresent in Narnia. And in what way is C.S. Lewis omnipresent to Narnia or in Narnia? Well, he, makes, he made Narnia. He created every reality that's in it, what every single creature does. So Lewis, we would say, is present in Narnia as the efficient cause, as the author or creator of, of the thing. So he's present to every part of it. Or uh, we might say that J.R.R. Tolkien is present in Middle-earth and that he gives being to every place person, setting, and scene, and he goes, you know, to great detail in how he does that. So I'm going to borrow some scriptural some scriptural language for a moment, and we could say, in C.S. Lewis, Narnia lives, moves, and has its being. Or I might say, it is Tolkien who worketh in Frodo and Sam, Gandalf, and Gollum, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do you see what I've done there? So now I'm I'm giving you a mode in which something can be in another thing, that's kind of like how God is in every reality. So I, I think uh, Josh, you you had asked a question um, a couple weeks ago, and I said when you're trying to wrestle through like the greatness of God, it's helpful if we go one step down on like the chain of being. So. If I go, okay, I don't really know what it's like for God to be present over here, but I would know what it's like for me to be present down here. And so when you're doing theology, it's really helpful. You go one step down. So you go from like 3D land to 2D land. And then you can say, it's kind of like that, but God is in like, you know, infinite dimension or whatever. You know, you have to make all these other moves. But but now you actually have a little bit more understanding for how it is that God can be in every reality as author, as creator, as sustainer, as giving everything to be, kind of like Tolkien or Lewis gives every single thing to be in their stories. This is also a helpful analogy when you think about that God does not change. He's utterly he can he he can't be changed right so he he can't grow in perfection or be diminished in perfection it'd be kind of like asking uh you know could frodo frustrate uh tolkien well no i mean there's nothing frodo does that tolkien doesn't make him to do okay now uh This also gets into those questions of like God's sovereignty, free will. You see, there is no, notice there's no conflict between Frodo's free will and C.S. Lewis's free will. Uh, It's actually, or uh, Tolkien's free will. It's actually the author who is giving the freedom to the creature. Okay, so we can use this analogy for other purposes, but we're using it here for presence. So in a a similar way, God relates to and loves his creation as giving every reality the gift of existence. So think again about that Acts 17 passage. In him, we live and move and have our being. God is the one who's in you, working you to will freely and to do freely of his good pleasure. And we're saying, okay, now we have a little bit more understanding of how that can not be a contradiction. So he's not spatially, Tolkien and Lewis are not spatially physically in their stories, nor could they be. It would actually be impossible for them to be in their stories in their actual mode, same mode of existence out here in 3D land. And that two-dimensional character or whatever dimension it would be in a fictional story just can't even comprehend what it's like in three dimensions, okay? Okay. Alright, so Holy Scripture makes us to say that God is present in every reality as efficient cause, as giving it to be. For in Him we live and move and have our being, and it is God who has done all our works in us. Now, if we were to stop here in our understanding, maybe we're helped a little bit, but there's still many errors that are probably in our mind when we think about God's omnipresence. Most people, you know, if you grew up, and you were told this in Sunday school, that God is everywhere. You know, most people think of God as like this vast, infinite space that like inhabits the air. He's like the force or something. Maybe he's like, but a personal force. And he's kind of like that negative space in between the atoms and molecules that hold things together. But uh, if you think along those lines, uh, that's that's actually pretty heretical that's quite errant because you're making god a creature right you're you're still positing that god is a body and that he's just really big but that's not what scripture says that god is that's what you know pantheists think that god is so pantheism or monism is this idea that everything is one so maybe you've you've met like a new age spiritualist kind of person where it's like You know, we're all God. You know, God is one and all is one. And we kind of are all composed together and we all need to come together because the universe is one, right? This is various Eastern mystical religions, very just like, you know, yoga, people who do yoga or something, I don't know. Um, This is the idea that all is one and God is actually, we compose him. Okay, that, that would be a highly, errant view of God. Uh, Some people think God is kind of like, yeah, the force. Um, Think about the error, like what error would that be to, to say that God and his creation are actually one? Well, what it would mean is that like somehow this is God. This is a part of God right now, this table, and you and I are a part of God. So this would be making uh, God what we would call the material cause. So he's the, he's the substance. He's the wood in the workshop that everything is made out of. Okay. Uh, that, that's a heretical view. I'll, pa- I'll pause there. Any questions on this? you see where we're gesturing at? Yeah. Yeah, so um, would we then, It depends on what version of theosis you hold to. Um, but uh, you should affirm some version of theosis, but if your metaphysics are bad, you probably will end up describing the union with God as something like a pantheist would. So yeah, you, that is that is an error where, where if you aren't really clear about what it means to be united to God in the beatific vision, because it says in, it says in 1st uh, or 2nd Peter that we are made partakers of the divine nature. So in what way are we partakers of the divine nature? Are we united with God? Do we become like God? Are, we are even called gods, Psalm 82. Okay. So scripture is going to make us to say certain things like we are partakers of the divine nature, but you need to know the negations, right? What things you're stripping out and what things... You're putting in. And a lot comes down to that. In what mode can you be in God? In what mode can God be in you? Well, as efficient cause. Not as material cause, not as the thing that is like your actual material, but as the thing that makes you to be kind of like C.S. Lewis makes Narnia to be.